So you do not own your private key. Um, and also you don't own your public key. And it's just the math formula of, of the private key times the generator point. Uh, and that's it, like it's, it's math. You don't own it, I'm sorry. That was Max Hillebrand, today's guest. We've been trying to get together on the podcast for quite a while, but it just hasn't worked out until now. So I've been very excited. Max is a entrepreneur. He is an open source advocate and host of the YouTube show Bitcoin to the Max on the World Crypto Network. And his take on ownership in Bitcoin was one of the more revelatory things that I've learned over 2019 and the fact that you really don't own your Bitcoin in a more general sense. And it really just kind of blew my mind until I started to think about it more. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode and are really going to take a lot away from his explanation of why you can't own Bitcoin and why I agree with him on that point. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Dustin. Thank you very much for the invite. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I'm really glad to get you on the show. We've been trying to work it out for for a little while, so it's it's uh, it's really good to have you on here. And um, you know, just different time zones and work schedules seems to have uh, kept us kept us apart uh, until now. So it's really exciting to have you on. And you know, I listened to the episode on the crypto voices podcast with uh matthew majinski and you talked about the the concept of private property ownership within bitcoin and for the most part a lot of libertarians and people who are attracted to bitcoin especially early on were very excited about bitcoin because you actually could, you know, hold and own your own Bitcoin versus having to worry about uh, with fiat banks and your basically your the ability for central banks and uh, through their uh, regional banks to be able to take your money. Um, and with Bitcoin, you're able to actually hold that. Um, so we've mostly kind of gone into Bitcoin for, for many, many years with this idea of, well, these are the UTXO sets that I own. This is my Bitcoin. But you talked about the concept of occulting knowledge versus actual ownership. Um, and, you know, I want to get into that here in just a second. But if you don't mind, could you actually give a little bit of background on yourself and how Bitcoin found you? Yes, for sure. So, so I'm basically an economist by trade. Uh, it's just a topic that I've, I've been fascinated for for a long time and started down with like the mainstream Keynesian nonsense and thought to myself, well, either I'm stupid and don't understand it, or this entire idea is flawed uh, fundamentally. Um, and uh, then uh, sooner or later, I discovered Austrian economics, uh, which, which with its methodo methodological individualism and very logical praxeology, uh, it, it was it was quite nice to to see that there is a school of economics that actually can explain uh, fundamental truths uh, based on reasoning and and uh, under or gaining this understanding. Uh, so so that is what uh, what I did long before Bitcoin uh, was this Austrian economic stuff. Uh, and then more and more I got into the open source uh, things. You know I, I downloaded Linux. Uh, I, I used other open open source software. 
and then sooner or later, uh, I, I, I decided to uh, watch a video by Andreas Antonopoulos called The Bubble Boy and the Sewer Rat, uh, which I think to his day is, is one of his best works uh, and a great explanation of the whole concept of anti-fragility. Um, and that is what kicked me down the rabbit hole. Uh, and ever since then, I've, I've been combining my Austrian economics knowledge uh, and adapting that to what I've learned new with Bitcoin, especially in the context of scarcity and ownership. Uh, and then learned a shit ton more additionally about, you know, this, the cyberpunk philosophy and, uh, you know, crypto anarchist strategies and strong encryption and, and all this, uh, which I think is a, is a great uh, strategy to achieve uh, what we theoretically lay out in uh, the Austrian economic framework. And what was it actually specifically when you were studying economics that, that really kind of, like you said, you were saying that either I'm stupid or this stuff doesn't work. What, what were there, was there a specific instance in kind of studying in the Keynesian school that, that made you think that, or was it kind of a, uh, accumulation of things? I think it was definitely more accumulation of things. Um, uh, mainly because, you know, they, they have a bunch of models and a very, very many like math formulas and graphs and intersections. Um, and I always thought that although their model makes internal sense, like that, yes, if these two curves meet, then something is happening. Um, but I always questioned if we can actually depict reality adequately in such graphs and assume like smooth uh, gradients and, and, and stuff like this, uh, which is just blatantly assumed without any reasoning in, in their model. Um, or, or like the concept of utils, that you can measure utility uh, and somehow draw something out of that was always something that I, that, that I just fundamentally uh, could not understand. Uh, and thus I, like, I, I could grasp that their model in and of itself makes sense, but I questioned the entire model um, from an outside point of view. Uh, and, uh, you know, then just many uh, other instances like this that just added up to me being very skeptical of the entire theory. And how did you actually come upon Austrian economics and, and, uh, and Rothbard? Because, uh, you know, even, even in America where, uh, you know, where it originated, um, or I shouldn't say not where it originated, but where it's, it's more popular, um, when where Rothbard was from, you know, libertarianism, um, Rothbardianism, Austrian economics is still a very small niche of of the populace, and I, I would venture to guess that's probably even uh, less so uh, in in Europe and in Germany where you're at. Uh, you know, was that something that uh, obviously the internet has opened up a lot more possibilities for people, but um, uh, you know, how did you get introduced to that, and and what is it like? Um, being in Europe as a as an Austrian and a Rothbardian, uh, it's actually a very good question. I'm not sure who recommended me the book initially, uh, but I read Hayek's uh, Road to Serfdom. Uh, I think as one of my earliest uh, Austrian textbooks, uh, and I, I think it might have been my old English teacher, uh, which was like this uh, crazy uh, crypto or, or uh, like Buddhist hippie monk uh, who, who taught me how to speak English. So that was great. And I think we talked about. Uh, some stuff on economics, and then he recommended me this book. And I continued reading Hayek uh, and, and eventually discovered Mises, uh, Van Bumberberg, uh, Menger. Though I did, I did never pick anything up from Murray Rothbard, uh, which is quite stunning. I just never really stumbled upon him. Um, and then I, I, yeah, I watched a video with um, uh, Roger Ver, uh, who you know, the, the, talked about voluntarism and, and anarchy. And he brought up Rothbard as one of his main, um, uh, yeah, just main mentors in the space. Uh, and that is when I first heard the name and then uh, downloaded and read um, 
uh, For a New Liberty uh, as my very first book by Mary Rothbard. Uh, and that just was so perfect. It, it really just described the entire, uh, you know, reasoning and axioms behind having a property rights focused uh, economic studies. Uh, and then, you know, Ethics of Liberty was the next book. Oh yeah, I remember reading For a New Liberty. Uh, I started reading it in the morning and I finished it like at eight o'clock in the evening, the first read, it just took me in. Uh, and I decided to reread it again instantly uh, and read it throughout the entire night. Um, and uh, it, it, it just really hooked me. It was something that really hit home to the core. Well, it's just, it's always really interesting to hear people's uh, journey in, in that regard. And, and um, you know, with within a, as an American context of myself, it was, it was a, a very, you know, strange journey, even where there's a, a larger, I would say probably a larger population of, of people who, who embrace these ideas. But even then, it's still a very small group if you go to, um, you know, any kind of libertarian groups and, um, or the libertarian party, which isn't necessarily the, uh, the same thing all the time. But um, it, it's always, you know, a very, still very small niche within within the uh, American culture. So it's even more interesting uh, for me to hear people's stories that, that come out of, um, out of the European continent, uh, you're, you know, you're like people like yourself and, you know, Giacomo Zucco, cause it just seems like it at times, you know, where, especially without the internet, it would be a, a very lonely place, but with, um, you know, the ability for people to meet up across the globe, it's, it's a lot less lonely to be able to, you know, discuss these, these ideas and, and, you know, Bitcoin is making this, uh, even more palatable as we uh, as we move forward, and people are kind of getting red pilled on it as they uh, start to you know get into Bitcoin and understand why. Uh, I, I don't think that you can be in Bitcoin for too long without you know starting to actually look at well why why is a central bank not a good thing? And I don't think that you can look into um, that concept without being introduced very quickly. Two people uh, like you know Hayek and Mises and and Rothbard. Oh yes, for sure. And I think this is this is in part because well, Austrian economics and Bitcoin kind of tackle the same issue from two different sides. So Austrian economics explains the theory right, of, of um, what can we logically deduct from base axioms, uh, and and how can we build a method methodological um, just framework of uh, you know of, of how we should interact, uh, and and what happens when we do so. The, the, uh, just the, the reasoning all behind it. Uh, but that is very theoretical. So you can read a bunch of books and you can sit down into lectures and, and have you know, seminars and, and other stuff about all this. But well, fundamentally, it, it's still all just theory, right? And Bitcoin is, is based on the theory. Like Satoshi Nakamoto was, was probably the greatest economist of the 21st century already, we can say that. Um, but but he, he went much more than just writing a book explaining it, right? He actually wrote a code that implemented a monetary system based on these uh, free market ideals. And now anyone who's using Bitcoin might just use it, right? Without having the, the theoretical framework behind it. But he sees that it works, right? And that there is something here and that this is actually a very beautiful system in many regards. And then people are interested to what is the theory behind what I'm actually doing here? I'm already doing it, but why, right? Uh, and and here's why I think so many now discover Austrian economics because it really is made for Bitcoin, or rather, Bitcoin is made based on Austrian economics. Uh, and and so all those that just use Bitcoin every day without even knowing about why this is such a fundamental breakthrough, they now have the opportunity to read Human Action or Man Economy and State, 
and actually discovered that there is an incredibly rich history and tradition uh, of scholars thinking through the different problems that we are facing right now. Uh, and uh, that Satoshi Nakamoto is just one of them who really found a brilliant solution to a very, very difficult problem. Now, as I, I mentioned in the in the introduction, um, in your interview on Crypto Voices, which is, I don't know if you talked about it before, but that was the first time I'd, I'd come upon uh, that that uh, that argument that you were making about ownership of Bitcoin and that you don't actually own Bitcoin in the same sense as, you know, a private property like the, you know, your own personal property that you hold, uh, such as your home or your car, or let's just say, if you have uh, gold coins that you keep in a safe or anything like that, that this private property that we have in the meat space, that Bitcoin is more a proof of knowledge of the keys than actual ownership. And I was, I was wondering if we can go into detail on that, because I, I find this concept of occulting knowledge versus ownership absolutely fascinating. Oh, yes, for sure. This is really a topic that has interested me very, very much. And it has fundamentally challenged how I view Austrian economics. Um, and and more like it gave me more understanding in depth about the whole thing. It, it really was it was quite brilliant. Uh, there is a great book by um, Stefan Kinsella uh, called Against Intellectual Property, uh, which which really was was what kicked me off in in understanding this here. It's it's a great explanation and very thorough. Um, and it also bases on on some of Mises and Rothbard's idea of, of the power of uh, well ideas itself. Um, so the the basic concept is that there are um, goods, which are things that are useful, right? They're good, they're not bad. Uh, the individuals use them because they like them, right? They're better off in having them than not. Uh, and in these goods, there are two different types of goods. One are scarce goods, the other are non-scarce goods. And there's a very fundamental difference in between them. A scarce good is, for example, a wooden log, just, you know, an old tree cut down. Uh, and what makes it scarce is that it is exclusive. So either Alice can use it, uh, the wood log, to build a house, or Bob can use the same wood log to build a boat. Right? But there's no possibility that both Alice and Bob can use the same wood log to make two fu fundamentally different things. Right? That's just, it's, it's, uh, it's exclusive. If Alice uses it, Bob cannot. Right? And then the other thing that scarcity uh, is defined by is uh, it's uh, like limitness in quantity. Right? If there's only one wood log, then we really have to find out uh, like what to do with it. If there are thousands of wood logs, then it might be okay right, for, for Alice and Bob to use them. Then they are abundant in nature. Uh, and although they're still exclusive, they might not necessarily be scarce in the way that is useful in, in the conversation for later. Because as soon as we have the scarcity, this exclusivity and this limitness, uh, that, or, or, then we have a potential of conflict of who can use these goods, right? Is it Alice who uses the wood or is it Bob? It cannot be both. So how do we um, define uh, and find out and then enforce who can own this, who has the actual ownership, the property rights? So property rights is based on the need for it in scarce goods, right? Because here we have a need for resource allocation and property rights is the only sane way uh, of doing so. And, and that is all the examples that you mentioned, right? Your house, that's a physical scarce good, right? Uh, either you live in it or your neighbor. It cannot be both at the same time. Uh, or, or your car, right? Either you drive it to uh, you know, New York or someone else drives it to uh, Los Angeles. There is no way of driving to, the same, to both places at the same time. And of course, your gold coin. Either you hold it and you store your wealth in it or someone else does, right? It cannot be both. So, so that is the attribute of scarcity.
Yeah, it, and it's funny that you you talk about um, uh, you know Stefan as as an you know inspiration for this is that um, you know he uh, in my interview with with him on on this very subject you know I, I brought up um, your your concept of of occulting the knowledge and he you know agreed hundred percent with your position that there are no property rights you know because you can't claim ownership of that knowledge. Um, and, you know, how, how do you see that, uh, though, affecting uh, Bitcoin adoption, both now and the future, if you can't make a property right to the value that you or, let's say, a business holds, you know, how can they, whether we're talking about um, uh, civil courts or, or, or private arbitration, have recourse to, you know, properly do business or is this a, a place where, say, something like insurance or someone would say, you know, obviously we don't prefer custodial solutions, but but for certain con uh, or for certain use cases, maybe that may make more sense. Yeah, for, for sure. So, so maybe to start this out with uh, the, the concept of non-scarcity, because that also applies, right? Um, that is the other side of a good. A non-scarce good is still something valuable, right? People still like it. That's why it's a good but it is not scarce. So it does not have the definitions that we've outlined earlier. Uh, and, and that would be, um, you know, a good that is not exclusive, uh, that Alice can share with Bob without actually sacrificing the usage of this good and Bob still gaining the usage of this good. Uh, so for example, um, if Alice is singing Bob a song, right? She does not all of a sudden lose the melody or the words of the lyrics, right? Uh, she still has them, right? She does not. She, she does not sacrifice them. However, Bob gains the pleasure of hearing this song, and he might memorize it and and later repeat it at his own liking. So Bob gains something, and Alice does not sacrifice anything. And uh, this means it is non-exclusive, right? If Alice has it, she can share it with Bob without sacrificing it, and Bob still has it, right? So anyone who would like to have these non-scarce goods can have them without anyone having to sacrifice anything, fundamentally speaking. Um, and, and this is where we all of a sudden no longer need property rights, because there is no potential conflict of uh, control. Anyone who wants to control a non-scarce good can do so simply by copying it from the quote-unquote original creator. Uh, so, so this is where non-scarcity is, is very fundamentally powerful. And Mises talks about this uh, exhaustively with uh, his um, The Power of Ideas, which I think is a, a two or three chapters in uh, human action. Uh, and, and Rothbard also talks a lot about this. Uh, and this is in contrast to what they call commodities. So every time you hear the Austrians say commodity money, what they basically mean in this framework is scarce physical goods. Um, and uh, then when they talk about ideas, it means non-scarce uh, goods. Uh, and for example, another, uh, another example for non-scarce goods is numbers, right? Who owns the number four? Well, that's a stupid question because nobody exclusively has all the uses for the number four. Right? There's not just one dude who can uh, you know, do math formulas that contain number four and anyone else is forbidden to do so. Uh, and it also means that he, he cannot stop anyone from discovering number four, right? I mean, like counting and, and numbering things is, is quite logical to come up with. Uh, so if you come up with uh, counting, then nobody can stop you from doing so because you're not violating someone else's property in scarce goods because you're using non-scarce goods. Um, and th th then how this all ties back into cryptography uh, is that cryptography basically is math. It is numbers. 
Like a private key is a huge, large random number that was chosen by flipping a coin. Like who owns the number four, right? Who owns the number 270, 50 billion and so on? Um, nobody, of course, right? Uh, so th therefore you cannot own a private key the same way as you cannot own the number four or as you cannot own the word uh, house. Like there, there are non-scarce goods that do not uh, need and do not declare ownership. So you do not own your private key. Um, and also you don't own your public key. Right? It's just the math formula of, of the private key times the generator point. Uh, and that's it. Like it's, it's math. You don't own it. I'm sorry. No, absolutely. It, it was, it, you know, when I heard you talk about that, um, it, it really kind of opened up a door in my, my brain in to really kind of understand Bitcoin a lot better because before that I'd always just assumed uh, the, the, in kind of the, the concept of the, of the scarce good in, in that way uh, that, you know, I own this UTXO set and this was mine until I, I decided to spend it. And then, in kind of a some philosophical way, I guess you could still make that that argument um, along the lines of of occulting the knowledge of of Bitcoin uh, of that private key that unlocks that that uh, that UTXO set. But uh, the this the specifically the idea of you can't own numbers uh, was was uh, really the thing that kind of got my my brain kind of going down this this direction and. Um, this is something that that uh, we've talked about on or that I've talked about on, on other occasions as well as it's uh, kind of going into the, you know, the religious context and in, in, in deeper into kind of the philosophy of when um, you talk about and this was a video that uh, Vin Armani had done as well about the, the concept of of render under C render under Caesar, which is the, the biblical story uh, in the Gospels where, you know, Christ is is confronted um, by um, some rabbis, and then they show him a coin with Caesar's face on it, and they say, you know, who's, you know, should we give, um, you know, the, pay the tax to Caesar? And he takes the coin, he looks at it, and says, whose face is this? They say, it's Caesar's. And he said, you know, render unto Caesar's, that is Caesar's, render, under, render unto God, which is God's. And the kind of the concept of Bitcoin as being not the money of Caesar, as being uh, of, of God's, of being a... Um, uh, a, a non non state money of being kind of a universal money is that as you said it's just it's a string of numbers and math is not anything that you can patent you can't like there's the guy that tried to patent pi and you you can't patent things that that just exist within the universe and you know strings of numbers uh do exist throughout the universe and this this concept of of uh, as, as far as philosophical question of you know, of being God's money or however you want to define that, depending on, on your background, uh, you know, that kind of really fit into that, that concept of, of occulting that knowledge. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. Um, and, and what you brought up earlier that you had this intuition of having um, ownership in your UTXO set, I would actually agree here. There is ownership in some parts of Bitcoin because Bitcoin is combined of, of or Bitcoin utilizes non-scarce information to create scarcity in cyberspace. That is, the, that is its great uh, in, invention here. Though, as I said earlier, right, the private keys are non-scarce. Same as the free and open source software that is run, right, written in, in C++ uh, or C++, that's like anyone can see it, anyone can copy it before taking it away. The source code is free and open source, right? However, probably the first thing that we stumble upon that is actually scarce 
is the hardware that you run your software on. So if you have a laptop or a Raspberry Pi, right, uh, this is a scarce physical good. Either you run your software on it or someone else runs his software on it. Uh, so this is one part of the scarcity. So this is something you own. You own your own full node, the hardware of it. You don't own the software that is running on your hardware, but you do own the hardware, right? Because that is a scarce good. Uh, and th then further, uh, as soon as we have uh, a, a several full nodes defining and verifying consensus, which consensus, again, is non-scarce. Nobody owns consensus rules. They're just rules. They're just words or code. Um, and then, uh, though, as soon as we have them defined so that we have a UTXO, right, a chunk of Bitcoin, um, and these, this chunk of Bitcoin can be spent by whoever has the knowledge of the non-scarce private key. Right? And we define this by providing the public key in the spending script, or sorry, in the, in the, well, in the locking script uh, of the UTXO. So here we define that this chunk of Bitcoin is exclusive. Right? It's not anyone who can spend it. It is only he who has the knowledge of the private key that can spend it. But this is still exclusive. Right? We limit the number of possibilities and restrict them to only a very careful selected view. Now, there, this means UTXOs are scarce. Right? Either Alice has her public key in them or Bob has it. Right? And even further, we see that UTXOs are scarce and very unique. Uh, when we have uh, multi-sig scripts or, or other advanced time lock contracts, um, these are all different spending conditions that define who can spend that coin. And they're all exclusive, right? Otherwise, they would not be definition of who could spend it because anyone could spend it. Um, and so the UTXO is scarce. However, the private key locking up the UTXO is not scarce. So even though if you've generated the private key randomly, right, then you can be pretty sure that you are the only one who has knowledge of the private key, right? So this means you are the only one who has mathematical, uh, mathematical way of proving that you know the private key, uh, and you're the only one doing so. So in this sense, you are the only one having ownership in that UTXO. However, what happens if someone simply copies your private key? Right? You laid your 24 monomic words laying around in the cafe, someone takes a picture or something like that, or someone hacks your computer. Um, then all of a sudden, he also has knowledge of the private key, right? and thus he can produce a valid signature. So the question is, did he steal anything from you? because he just copied your private key. He did not take your private key, right? He cannot steal it. Um, you still have access to it and, and knowledge of it. However, according to the Bitcoin consensus rules, as soon as he gains knowledge of the private key, he has every right to spend that coin in whatever transaction he so desires. So there, there, there is no potential or of conflict of control over the private key, right? Because you can easily copy it, but there is potential of conflict over who can spend the UTXO. Uh, and this is in Bitcoin just done by defining whoever has knowledge of the private key, which in and of itself is not ownership, but it's knowledge, right? Uh, but you do own a UTXO if you're the only one having knowledge of the private key. And kind of going back, I, I, I apologize. I kind of jumped in the middle of your, your thought there when you were explaining the scarce and non-scarce goods. Um, but, uh, you know, how do you see the... Um, uh, this do you because this is a, a very foreign concept for people uh, to go from the traditional banking system right where we've come to kind of expect a certain level of I wouldn't even call it security but 
where, you know, if someone uh, grabs your debit card, you leave it at a bar and, um, you know, they, you, you, they take that debit card and then they go and they buy, you know, $100 in gas and, you know, uh, you know $200 worth of electronics at a store. And you, you know, are able to make a claim um, to the bank that you actually did not uh, spend that, that they will, you know, either reimburse you or they, they shut down your card or whatever. And there, there's a certain expectation that people have come to, um, or let's just say you leave, you know, a thousand dollars sitting um, on the desk at your house. Someone, you know, comes into your house, takes that thousand dollars and leaves, but you catch the guy later. You can try, you know, the, your ability to actually get that money back is going to be different depending on the, um, the, the, the laws in the region that you live in. But they've come to expect that there's some sort of recourse that action that, that they can take. And this would be a very different sort of mentality that people would have to, um, that Bitcoiners already really have, that if you don't hold your private, you know, if you don't occult that knowledge of your private keys uh, very well, then, you know, if somebody happens upon it or, or um, like you said, tax your computer and finds that you had left an Evernote with uh, your your private keys on them, that they could take them. How do you see this affecting adoption? Do you see this as something that will hold people back for a period of time or that there's going to be a need to um, uh, kind of recalibrate people's you know mental state and how they view money? Or and, and how do you think that there are private solutions to the average consumer who wants to have some sort of recourse to be able to reclaim any kind of uh, uh, lost funds or a business that has a, a large amount of Bitcoin uh, that they hold, or you know, if, if in, a, in a Bitcoin world, all their their uh, money would be held in Bitcoin. Uh, you know, is this something that in insurance or some other sort of uh, uh, solution might be able to might be able to fix? So I, I would tackle the question um, from the side of who actually demands to hold money. Who wants to have the thing, right? Uh, and uh, it's merchants, right? It's those who sell goods and services for money. They are saying, I, I want money, thus I'm willing to give you my coffee, right? That is what a merchant does. So th the question here is, is actually regarding, are entrepreneurs willing to take a monetary good that is easy to reverse, right? And actually the answer is probably not, right? Uh, if if you are a merchant and you give your coffee and like five days later all of a sudden the money is gone because uh, some other dude stole a card from someone else and now all the transactions are reversed you lose right so so that is not actually something that you as a merchant want to have uh, and if you have this extra cost you will simply increase your price right if there is more risk of transactions being reversed you will have to charge on average uh, more for everything else um, so I. So I don't really think it's it's a useful feature to have on the side of a merchant, um, uh, and and thus I would say uh, it's it's quite good that Bitcoin does not have the reversibility that it is actually the probabilistic final um, uh, you know change of ownership, um, and and though further I would say that if you would like to have such a thing right if both merchant and consumer agrees of having um, you know uh, just cancelable payments, then you can always build a cancelable payment on top of a final payment, right? You can, uh, for example, in Bitcoin, you do this with vaults. You have a, a predefined uh, or and pre-signed transaction uh, that sends the Bitcoin back 
uh, to someone else, to some other address, probably the original owner. Um, so, so here you have a final payment that you can cancel after the fact, right? And you, you cannot do the same by having a cancelable payment as the base layer, right? If, if there's always the possibility that someone might withdraw the payment, uh, then there's no way of having actual finality and actually building tools that require this finality to be had. Uh, so I think it's better to have a final money that you can opt in to being cancelable or withdrawable. Uh, and again, as, as myself, as an entrepreneur and merchant, uh, I want to have final settlement of my money. Uh, I don't want to trust on a third party uh, to maybe take my money back after the fact. Well, yeah, this gets back to the, the concept of, in the white paper, electronic cash and what that specifically uh, means in terms of, of its, its implications and that the, you know, the cash is, is referring to the finality of payment in that the same way that if you pay uh, someone, you know, uh, you owe $100 at, at, a, at a restaurant or whatever and that you, or I just owe you, um, for whatever, and I, I give you a hundred dollars in cash. There, there's no way for you to uh, contact anyone and and say, hey, you know, I need this hundred dollars in cash back. Like that, that's a very final payment in the same way that that Bitcoin is. And you know, once you send that through, and then also the 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 problem that you know Satoshi saw and that he was going to fix was not uh, necessarily the the um, the issue of, of of petty crime, uh, but the the ability for state actors or for banks or you know trusted third parties to be able to um, take your money. If you have an ability to reverse payments, you have that same ability to you know go into someone's account, uh, take their money from them for whatever reason it may be, whether it's a um, a lien against them for lack of tax payments or or, or just because you're a um, a person that's that's not, you know, that that could be a, some sort of dissident or or whatever the case may be, but by by Bitcoin's consensus mechanism in the network is that these people cannot be uh, forced remotely, I guess you could say, uh, to have their value taken from them. Uh, there's of course always the ability for someone in person uh, to, to do that, but then that's when you have to start to implement other security procedures and, and all that for, for your Bitcoin that you hold to, to make sure that that is not a, you know, the $5 wretch attack sort of deal. Um, but, you know, I, uh, or I'm, I'm sorry, did, did you have any uh, thoughts on, on that? Yes. I mean, in general, right. It's, it's a question of what do we actually try to achieve here? Right. And, and there again, the theory comes together with, practice. We have Austrian economics telling us that having a society based on property rights uh, is the most prosperous for anyone, right? It's, uh, and we can pretty much prove this axiomatically and praxeologically. Uh, and then Bitcoin is a way of giving individuals the tools to define, verify, and enforce their property right claims, right? And they do that by running a full node and defying, for example, monetary consensus on 21 million Bitcoin being the maximum, right? So what this enables is that it becomes extremely difficult, if not impossible, uh, to increase the money supply against the will of anyone running a full node. Uh, this means that an increase in the money supply, meaning inflation, is impossible in this self-verifying system, meaning that nobody can steal your property rights by diluting the money supply indirectly via inflation. Uh, so so th this already is one way of defending your property right 
is by having an uninflatable money, which we do by running our own full node. Right? So we defend against indirect theft this way. And the other way people can steal from you is by taking the monetary unit itself. Right? You take the actual scarce good, the Bitcoin UTXO, uh, and you take that. You don't change the money supply. You just take the single Bitcoin UTXO. Um, and we defend against that by having private and public key cryptography, which actually works quite well. Right? Uh, like it's mathematically impossible to produce a valid signature if you have not the knowledge of the private key. Uh, so this means that the attack vector actually must gain knowledge of the private key. There is no other way uh, of stealing your Bitcoin directly. Now the question is, how can he gain knowledge of your private key? And there, of course, one way would be hacking your computer right, uh, over the internet. So it might make sense to have your private key stored offline, uh, maybe on a dedicated hardware signing device. Um, and then the other reason would be the $5 wrench attack, right? He hits you so hard until you, quote unquote, like voluntarily, uh, well, no, it's, it shouldn't say that, uh, until you are coerced to uh, actually uh, freely giving out your private key, right? Because you want the torture to stop. So you, um, he convinces you by using aggression um, to uh, you know, leak, uh, to de-occult the secret, uh, to give out the secret uh, of the private key. Uh, and as soon as he has the private key, right, the Bitcoin network will accept any spending transaction. It's a valid signature. Um, so again, the exclusivity is defined by the knowledge of the private key. And if someone else can get knowledge of your private key, you do not have any protection against direct theft. So this is the weak point that we really have to defend against. And that is by something like um, hardware devices um, for signing uh, or maybe more advanced multi-sig or junior secret sharing schemes and secure backups. All this is very, very important because this is actually the weakest point, right? Everything else is pretty damn solid. Try changing the 21 million money supply or try producing a fake signature without the private key. It's pretty damn difficult. Uh, so what an attacker needs to do is gain knowledge of the public, uh, private key which is already a very challenging and difficult part, much higher defenses than any other system could provide. Yeah, you know, Bitcoin has always been about this this concept of, of sovereignty and, and it's grown out of the, um, or I should say that the Bitcoin's use case and Bitcoin's uh, necessity, uh, because, you know, all, all inventions uh, are, or all successful inventions, are born out of you know a necessity in society for for something whether it's you know greater communication so we invented the telephone and the you know the or they should say the you know the telegraph and then the telephone and then the internet the ability um for uh, better transportation and 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 more efficient modes of reaching a place so we you know uh, tamed horses and then uh, domesticated them and and then eventually created the combustion engine you know cells uh, and everything like that for boats and to me, Bitcoin has always been uh, precipitated by this idea of the need for for individual sovereignty. So, you know, you had the firearm um, creates your ability to de to defend your own sovereignty um, from a physical form of attack, and and Bitcoin's you know outgrowth or necessity that was that was created or that created the necessity for it was was that it the need for your own financial sovereignty, which is not, I guess you could say it's technically possible with gold in a way. Uh, you buy it, you hold it. Uh, the problem always being is who's going to take it at a later date, um, you know, for, for, for goods. And also the, 
the it's much less safe in that you have to have a physical storage for it if if that physical location is ever compromised then someone can just go and and take it whereas if you're if you're just occulting a piece of knowledge it could follow you wherever you go versus you having to carry you know a suitcase that weighs uh, 3000 pounds exactly right and and another thing to add on here is that for example how do you verify the total money supply of gold right you have no clue um, if if there are other real gold atoms out there uh, that are in use, right? And also, you don't know if someone else is accepting um, fake gold, right? Uh, like uh, just charlatan's gold uh, as the real thing. Uh, and you don't know if others are accepting bad money either, which all of this increases the money supply, which you want to know about. You want to calculate with that number. Um, and that's the cool thing in Bitcoin. Not just do you verify the total money supply, you verify every single transaction that it does not increase uh, any of like the money supply in and of itself. Uh, and you don't just know that for the past and the present, but because you run your own full node, you can even say that for the future as well. So we have perfect audibility of the money supply, which decreases the uncertainty uh, of having the Cantillon effect and uh, through inflation, uh, which is mind-bogglingly awesome because money is a tool to remove uneasiness. And now we've just taken the biggest uneasiness of money, the inflation risk, completely out of the picture. Exactly. They've, I mean, it's it's kind of a, a cliched thing at this point as well uh, of talking about, you know, an asteroid that falls on Earth uh, that, you know, that has a large supply of gold um, within it that, that does increase that, that, uh, that supply of it. But, I mean, that is, although it's become somewhat of a cliche in, in, um, in, uh, within Bitcoin Twitter at a, at a point, um, it, it does have a, a level of truth to it because as we begin to expand off this planet uh, and colonize other worlds and, you know, kind of move into a, uh, as a, as an interstellar species, you know, there are large amounts of all these sort of physical metals, whether we're going to talk about gold or silver or copper or palladium or uranium, whatever you want to pick. Uh, where that will increase that supply over time and our ability to extract that um, from uh, different places will, will uh, increase over time as well. Whereas with Bitcoin, uh, there's there's no way to inflate uh, that, that monetary supply. Well, I guess technically someone could do that if they wanted to fork off and, and uh, create their own Bitcoin and then in, inflate it, but then it's not Bitcoin, it's just a, you know, a, sham copy of it exactly right uh, and uh, though i would even say that you know the asteroid example is not it's, it's probably not going to be the end of the world because free individuals will be able to adjust their calculation for the now increased money supply it's just important that they have to know that this money supply increase has happened right so if, if it's on the news and everyone knows that the asteroid has hit the earth then i don't think it's a big problem but if there is like one or like a one small cartel uh, who goes in space and mines a bunch of gold and then they bring it back without anyone knowing that this is gold that has just increased the money supply, then we see the worst effects of the Cantillon uh, effect. So, so that is that would be the bad thing. Um, but the cool thing is, again, with Bitcoin, we don't even have to worry about it, because as you say, as soon as someone tries to increase the money supply, he breaks my own rules. And so I kick him out of my own network and I will never deal with him ever again. Uh, and thus, I really don't have to worry about changing the money supply because the only one changing my money supply is myself, right? 
If I decide to fork off and increase the money supply, I can do so and I will exit the old network with the old money supply and enter a new network with a new money supply. Right? But I'm the one who has the choice if I want to increase the money supply or not. Well, we, you know, we've actually seen examples of this with um, the the discovery of the the new world, as they called it, in the in the 1500s of coming to to North and South America. Um, they brought, I don't know how many, it was like a, over a hundred thousand tons of of silver um, from you know from the Americas in back into Europe. And that had, like you said, people have to be aware of it. But, you know, if you had uh, your family had uh, large holdings or just any amount of holdings in, in silver and gold, which was the, the money at the time, uh, you would have seen a, a inflation of that of that uh, that supply by this large amount um, over that period of time being influxed into Europe. And they say that the price of gold and silver dropped by about a third um after after that because there was just these large influx of these ships just laden with with gold and silver and and other precious metals uh, coming back into europe and just you know rushing into a market that had for you know a very long time had a pretty steady uh supply increase um so that people had that knowledge of of what that value was by you know a massive influx of this uh precious metals coming from the americas it kind of upended the the kind of known quantity the known supply for these people whereas with bitcoin you're never going to have to worry about well is someone going to discover you know something new in some place where you see you know uh, uh you know 50 million bitcoin rushing into the system Exactly. Uh, th th that's exactly it. And again, that is the, that is the importance of running your own full node. Uh, and, and that is, you know, the entire reason why we're in it, because now we actually have the tools to defending our property rights, even against inflationary theft, which is just unheard of. It's, it's something that was never possible before. And, you, you know, you've done um, quite a bit of work with, with Wasabi Wallet, and I interviewed uh, Adam Fishore. Uh, not too well. I guess it was probably about six months ago. Uh, but what is it about uh, Wasabi and, and the concept of coin joins that has uh, you know kept you interested in in this project? So again, my end goal is to defend my own property, right? Uh, and uh, a good strategy of doing this uh, is you know being private and not telling anyone how much property you actually have and what you do with it. Right? Uh, this is breaking the OODA loop. Uh, the OODA loop is is a way that we uh, you know act in the world. We observe uh, what is happening, then we orient uh, ourselves and try to understand the picture that is uh, happening. Uh, then we um, formulate a, um, a decision on what we will actually do. Uh, and then as the last step, we act based on that decision that was based on the orientation that was based on the observation. Uh, so this is the OODA loop and the whole thing can, uh, starts over again. And this is basically how we act in every hour of our lives. And so if an attacker tries to take your money, uh, first, he will observe you. He will see how much money do you actually have. Uh, or, or, and then he will orient and see, okay, is this actually a, a, a valuable target? Like what, what is his defenses? How much money does he have and all this? Um, this is the orientation phase. Uh, and ultimately, then the um, decision-making phase uh, is 
when he actually decides, yes, I will try a $5 venture tag and try to get his private keys, uh, which is then ultimately his action. Um, uh, and so if you want to defend against such a malicious attempt, um, how do we best break this with the least effort and uh, with, with the least uh, harm uh, done in general? And I would say it is by breaking in the uh, observation and orientation phase. So what we want to do here, and that goes very much into crypto anarchy, is to break the attribution of our actions. So to break um, that anyone can observe how much money I actually have uh, and what I do with my money, right? Then there is no observation possible. Um, or even if they find out that someone has this much money, um, I should still be able to defend that they find out that it is me. So they should not be able to orient themselves and attribute the large money holding to me as a person, right? Um, and, and this is why privacy tools comes in. This is why it's important to have strong encryption. So you have a secure communication channels where you can keep secrets and uh, you know, talk with others privately. Um, and then also, uh, this is in the sense of Bitcoin, um, a big downside because we well, do have a public ledger that everyone verifies. Right? So anyone can observe that a money transfer has happened. Now, what we want to hide is who actually made the transfer. Right? And we do that by running your own full node, by not leaking your extended public keys, um, uh, and by using the Tor network uh, to broadcast transactions and so on. Um, and then, then also we uh, want to ensure that uh, the, you know, the transaction history itself gets obfuscated, that we do not, that one party does not find out what this one cluster spends his money on, that he buys the coffee at this store, uh, that he just bought a boat, uh, which he had a tragical, tragic, uh, a tragical uh, boating accident on, uh, or that he bought the Lambo and all these different things. We don't want others to find out um, where, where I spend my money on. And this is then where the concept of coin join comes in, which is a tool to break the transaction history. And for those that are that are listening that are that are not familiar with that uh, that transaction uh, history, is that uh, you know companies like Chainalysis um, or just uh, individuals who, like you said, are are trying to find a target um, are usually looking uh, where where all this money is going if they see it accumulating in in one or two wallets. Um, and that there's history between you can usually define relationships and and even who the individual is depending like if you go to overstock or something like that and you buy uh, let's say a couch uh, with your with your Bitcoin wallet back in 2013 and you're still using um, you know the, the, those same wallets you can track that history of, of, of those people and 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 or that you see that they've transferred from that old wallet that had kind of identified them to a new one you can roughly kind of uh, guess based on other uh, you know activities you know possibly it's the same person or that it's somebody close to them or whatever how does coin joins uh, actually break up um, this this specific kind of transaction history and and uh, help to obfuscate who you are and and how much uh, wealth that you that you have Yes, very good question, Dustin. So, so maybe to start out with, how does actually a Bitcoin transaction look, right? Uh, and it has an input field and an output field. Uh, the input field basically declares which UTXOs, which unspent transaction outputs are going to be spent. So which Bitcoins um, are going to be spent. And uh, we already know 
that, that there is a public key associated with a Bitcoin UTXO. And in the input, we provide that public key together with a signature um, over the transaction message itself. So we have the signature of the private key that locked up this UTXO. Uh, that means that we can verify that he had knowledge of the private key, um, whoever made that spending transaction. Um, so, so this is what's in the input. Uh, and there can be several coins in the input. It must not only be one, it can be many. Um, and for example, one privacy leak here is that we could assume, it's a heuristic, that all the inputs in one transaction belong to the same person or to the same cluster, right? And that is oftentimes the case. For example, if you want to buy coffee for five Bitcoin and you have a uh, only a three Bitcoin or two times three Bitcoin UTXOs, then you cannot use just one Bitcoin UTXO because that's only three Bitcoin, you need five. So you put both three Bitcoin UTXOs into the input of the transaction to make a five Bitcoin transaction. Uh, so in this sense, it would be correct to assume that both of these inputs belong to the same cluster uh, or the same identity. Um, but of course, we don't just want to spend coins, we also want to like, receive them, right? Um, to give them a destination where they go to. And here we have outputs in a transaction. And these outputs define um, which uh, conditions must be fulfilled in order to spend this coin um, and how much is into the coin. Uh, so first, uh, the property rights definition is most of the time the hash of a public key, basically just the public key itself, um, which means anyone with knowledge of the single private key can spend the coin. Right? There could also be multi-sigs that you need to prove knowledge of M of N public keys, uh, or there could be like hash time lock contracts or, or other advanced Bitcoin scripts. It's quite an exhausting, uh, exhaust descriptive language. So you can have many different property rights definition but basically, this is what's part of the input, uh, or sorry, of the output of the transaction, together with the value of the coin. So, for example, in our previous uh, previous version here, um, there would be one destination output which has the public key of the merchant who's selling you the coffee, and the value of five Bitcoin associated with this one um, output. Uh, and then there's also the change output, which goes back to yourself, right? Because you provided six Bitcoin in the input. And now you have one Bitcoin left over and you're going to send this one Bitcoin back to yourself uh, so that you can spend it in one of the future transactions. Um, and this is in general how a transaction workflow uh, looks. And, you know, the this is one of the, the things within Bitcoin that, you know, we we you know, appreciate the, the ability for uh, transaction history uh, and that provides the ability to, you know, audit the entire network and obviously would not work without it but there is that there is that uh privacy issue that that we do have uh that you know like like you said if if um if you're using your bitcoin and it's you know leading back to you and that if you aren't able to not only occult your the knowledge of your private keys but of your uh pseudonymity of that um and this provides the the ability for especially for state actors like if you're a dissident in china to be able to um kind of triangulate individuals who are receiving um value in bitcoin uh to be able to continue doing what they're doing versus if they're using the people's bank of china they can just shut that down uh so by using bitcoin you're able to continue to to 
do whatever it is you're doing. Um, but with this, the auditable transaction history um, and a very, you know, pretty much, a, I guess you, if you want to call it a linear one, um, you, you can make these sorts of assumptions on who these, uh, eventually who these people are or uh, who they interact with to be able to contact those people and, and figure out who this person is. Um, so with, with, uh, with coin joins and, and um, uh, you know, they are basically, if I, if I understand it from, from talking with Adam and, and uh, my own research is that basically you're just taking a pool of, let's just say a hundred people and you're just mixing all these various unspent uh, UTXOs, and then it spits out um, other ones back to uh, a new wallet, and then you're able to send those off wherever you want to, and you can mix those. I believe it's up to what, like 50, 50 times um, per per coin join. Well, so a coin join in general um, basically is several peers together providing different inputs. So let's say there are 100 individuals who all have two or three inputs and they want to register them for the coin join. Um, so we build a transaction that includes hundreds of these inputs, right? Because there are hundreds of different peers. Uh, and that breaks already the first assumption, which would be that you, um, that every, all the inputs are controlled by the same, by the same cluster, right? That's the common input ownership heuristic. We break that. Right? Because already we have many, many different people providing the inputs. And then what we put into the outputs, um, so, so basically a coin join is you send to yourself fundamentally, or that's at least the best way to explain it and the most common way. Um, and if we would put the exact same value of the input into the output, for example, Alice has five Bitcoin in the input and she gets five Bitcoin in the output, and Bob has 4.12345 Bitcoin in the input, and gets 4.1.3.12345 Bitcoin in the output, then it is very easy to use a technique that's called CoinJoin Sudoku to find out which output was paid by which input. Um, and thus, it's, thus, this is not really um, a good way of doing it. And we solve this problem by creating equal value outputs. So for example, we define that this particular round of CoinJoin creates equal value coins, for example, in the case of Wasabi, of 0.1 Bitcoin, right? So we have many, many inputs, and then we have 100 outputs that are all exactly 0.1 Bitcoin. Uh, and everyone has exactly the same value down to the last Satoshi. And then the, there are also further in the output fields, the change output, for example, that sends back to Bob uh, 3.12345, right? So exactly his change that he had, um, uh, which is the input, minus the equal value denomination, minus the fees, um, equals the change output. And again, this change output, because it does not have equal value, out number, value with others, means that it can easily be linked to the input of the transaction. Um, so to summarize, a coin join is a tool where several individuals get together to make a transaction where they break the link between input and output within that one transaction. So it's clear that Alice controls the input, but it's unclear that Alice or which of the 0.1 Bitcoin equal value coin join outputs Alice controls, right? And this is where we got our privacy. All of a sudden, it is no longer clear who controls all of these coins. And this is uh, 
important uh, because the way that most chain analysis is done, um, whether it's by state actors or private companies like chain analysis, is that they uh, th there's a certain amount of like hops and 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 breaks within the transactions um, for an individual uh, because you can't you can't count uh, you know f forever that X Bitcoin belongs to X person um, or that they just you know because obviously people can just create new wallets and and send it along that way. Uh, but it, it the I, I forget what it is like eight hops or something like that, and it's pretty much assumed um, by most actors to not be yours anymore. Um, if I if I'm correct in that, and that that's what CoinJoin helps to like you just said break up is that that um, on the network looking at it um, is is break up that that uh, that ownership of it in the in the eyes of somebody who's analyzing um the you know various utxos exactly so the the other strategy that you bring up here is called self-spending um, and I'm, I'm i'm not sure that it's actually a quite a good strategy after all uh, because first um it's very expensive right you make many transactions thus you pay a rather high fee and everyone has to verify it um so it's 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 not a efficient way of gaining privacy uh and also oh, max yes Oh, I was just going to say, it, it was sounding really muffled there for for the last uh, few seconds. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll get the mic closer. Okay, there we go. That's perfect. Sorry. The the other thing that, that is an issue um, is that if done naively, it's trivial to find out that you're sending to yourself, right? If you just send the whole coin to yourself or you create only one output and then you combine two outputs, uh, you know, after a while again, it is very easy to find out after the fact that you still control all of these transactions. Um, there are scripts, for example, in Join Market that do these self-spends with several hops, uh, and they they you know have some uh, you know well thought through logic uh, of the number of inputs and outputs created and all this. Um, so so you know if you do such a thing, at least use a tool that is actually well designed for it. Uh, don't try to roll your own. I, I don't think that would work. Um, and further, the, the even bigger downside is um, all of these coins actually belong to you, right? Uh, and what you do not gain is the transaction graph inflow of other users, right? All of the coins belong to you and you just try to hide that fact. But you try to hide the fact within the crowd of all of your coins, right? With a coin join, you still send to yourself, right? And you can do multiple rounds of coin join, thus getting multiple hops. Um, however, you gain hundreds of other users' coins in one transaction that are now associated with that one coin of yours, which means that they, it becomes much, much, much more difficult to actually find out which of these self-spends are linked to each other. Um, so a coin join is kind of doing the self-spending multiple hops. However, it is done so in a way where you gain no plausible deniability by having other people's coins in that same transaction. No, that makes sense. I remember doing that uh, in, in years past of of um, sending it to, from you know wall to wallet, but that does get you know quite expensive uh, over over time, especially if you're trying to do uh, the same thing that uh, that a coin join does. You know, if you're trying to send it to fifty you know different addresses along the way and uh, and split up the uh, the UTXOs so that it's it's not as obvious because if you're just sending if you had 0.53 Bitcoin in your wallet. And you're just sending 0.53 along the way. Uh, eventually, well, it's going to be uh, rounded down over time with with the mining fees. 
Um, but, you know, it, it's pretty easy to follow that pretty likely that's the same person just sending it from wall to wall, especially if it's over a short period of time, whereas uh, coin joints make that, that a lot more uh, efficient and, and, and cheap uh, to do. Um, but, you know, I'd, well, I, yeah, I'd like to talk more about privacy uh, in Bitcoin because I know that there's stuff coming up with, with Taproot and uh, within Lightning as well. But uh, just uh, uh, minding, minding your time, um, we've been uh, talking for about an hour now, so I know you got other things to to do today. Uh, but I, I wanted to to thank you for for coming on. I really enjoyed the, the conversation. It was, you know, I, I really enjoy these kind of uh, these. Uh, I guess if you you could call it a, a, a fringe discussion of of ownership and occulting knowledge, because I don't think that um, a lot of Bitcoiners are are understanding this concept that you're discussing. And I hope that. Um, you know, uh, interviews like this and, and future ones that you do help them to kind of get a, a better grasp of, of what Bitcoin is. Uh, you know, how can people follow you, find out what you're doing and uh, get in contact with you? Yeah, for sure, Dustin. Thank you very much for the invite. Again, uh, I really like the show so far. Uh, you always have good guests and good questions for them. Uh, so pleasurable uh, to speak with you here and to share this non-scarce knowledge with others who are willing to accumulate it. Right. <laughs> um, so, so people can find me in general. Um, well, on Twitter, that's that's basically the only social uh, media stuff that I that I'm out doing. And here it's at Hillebrand Max. Um, but also uh, on GitHub, uh, more and more. Uh, although I'm a noob and cannot code, I'm still trying to support different open source projects. Uh, so here you'll find me uh, mainly on the Wasabi Wallet repository, uh, but you know also uh, for for other stuff um, on there. Um, and by the way, also on, on GitHub, I host my um, thesis. I wrote a thesis on um, non-simulated shared ownership of scarce Bitcoin with multi-signatures in the Lightning Network, which the first part is exactly what we talked about, uh, the, the definition of scarcity and non-scarcity and how it applies uh, to physical goods and to cryptography. Uh, and the second part of the thesis is what we can do with this in Bitcoin, right? And, and how Bitcoin enforces scarcity by utilizing non-scarce goods. Um, and then the last part is uh, the use cases. Uh, so what can we actually do with a two or three multi-signature or with a lightning channel and, and all this? Um, so, so for listeners who actually want to read up on some more, I think it's like 60 odd pages or something um, on GitHub, uh, this paper. And also it's on my personal website, towardsliberty.com, um, where my email is max at towardsliberty.com. Uh, and, and on the website, you find uh, you know, links and references uh, for Austrian economics, for Bitcoin, for natural law philosophy, um, and uh, you know, also uh, several uh, links to all of my videos that I've produced talking about the different tools uh, and, and strategies that we have here in the space. Um, so again, Dustin, thank you very much for the invite, and I'm looking forward to the next shows. Well, thanks again, and uh, we'll, we'll talk soon.